Well, what if I told you you could do one simple thing and it would guarantee that you would sleep longer, exercise more, and lower your blood pressure? And then it would also give you more energy, more optimism and happiness, and you'd have better relationships with people. And it would help you earn more money and strengthen your immune system. We're all for that, right? And the teenagers in your life, by the way, if they did this one thing, they would get better grades, they would make higher goals, they would have less headaches and anxiety, and they would be more satisfied. Wouldn't you love if your teenagers were more satisfied with their friends and their family and their school? Sounds too good to be true, huh? One simple thing? Well, there was a study conducted at UC Davis in 2009, and actually many studies for some reason over the last decade, and what they found is if you add one simple thing to your life, if you simply begin to express your thankfulness, all these things will be true of you. You don't even have to be a Christian. Just simply express your thankfulness, and all these things would be yours, according to these studies. Now, we know that everything that God commands us to do is for our good. So we know, because he's told us we need to be thankful, that it will work for our good as well, regardless of what the studies say, right? Well, today Paul is going to model Christian thankfulness for us as he discusses the Colossians. But he's not just going to be thanking God for trivial, small things in their lives. Actually, Paul's going to zoom out and he's going to give us a really big picture of thankfulness because he's going to be thanking God for saving them and for transforming their lives. Listen to how he says it in Colossians 1, 3 to 8, our text today. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God <clears throat> in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, God has blessed these people here with salvation and a changed life. And the wonderful thing and the reason we need to thank him today is because he's still changing lives right now. And I know that I could have many of you come up and you could testify to the power of God that saved you and changed your life. In fact, I bet I would have a huge line of people ready to share about how God has done that. We dare not take what he has done for granted. We dare not forget to thank him for this amazing and wonderful change that he's given almost everybody in this room. We need to be thankful for it. Now, Paul is going to share in great detail what he is thankful for, but I think we need to look at how he sets it up first. And he sets it up in verse three. If you'd look at it with me, it says, we always thank God. And then the end of verse says, when we pray for you. He says he thanks God a lot every time he prays for them, in fact. And we can quickly see that there's a connection. If he's frequently thanking God, it most likely means he's frequently praying to God as well. In fact, our prayers are the things that fuel our thanks most often. When we see God answer prayer, we now get content for which to thank him. And our thanksgiving just goes up as we see God at work. So if we want to get more thanking going, we're going to need to get more praying going. So we're going to make point number one this. We need to pray more 
for others. Pray more for others. When we read through the letters of Paul, we can see right away that he is a man of prayer. In fact, in all of his letters, he's continually reassuring people that he's praying for them. He is not just a habitual prayer, though. He is a habitual praiser, and you see it in lots of his letters. It's the perfect combination of prayer and praise that we see in the Apostle Paul's life. He actually prays and praises. He doesn't just say he's praying. He actually follows through and does it, not just for one person, one family, but for many, many people. He loves people, and he proves it every day by praying for them. He was a man who was born into Judaism. You know that. He was trained under the master teacher Gamaliel, and he attained to this high office, the highest office of Pharisee. He was a man who was very familiar with prayer. But the thing is, the day he got knocked off his horse and became a real Christian, his prayer life changed forever. You see, when you become a Christian, you get invited for the very first time into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. The Bible says that when Jesus' body was broken on the cross and he breathed his laugh, that that veil was ripped in two, right? And that veil now meant that we have complete access right into the presence of God to talk to him. Paul had never had that before. He was not a priest. He was not allowed into the Holy of Holies. So this was a new thing. And you better believe he was going to take advantage of the fact that he now has 100% complete access to God. And so does every Christian. Every Christian can enjoy this unlimited admittance to the throne room of God. Now, Paul understood what a tremendous privilege it was to have God's attention like that, to be able to talk to God. He was never one to squander an opportunity, so he became the consummate prayer of the New Testament, and we see it over and over. He literally seems to be praying for everyone, even those that he does not know. He's constantly reassuring people and churches that he is praying for them. He's going to God on their behalf, and because he does that, he lays down a beautiful template for us. And we could share so many things about him, but I'm going to share four things that he's going to help us pray for others. A, B, C, D. Colossians 1.3 implies, first of all, that he's praying a lot, right? But in Romans 1, 9, and 10, he says it directly. Romans 1, 9, and 10, he says, God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. And what Paul teaches us through this is that we should pray for others, letter A, regularly. Regularly. Paul prays and prays. Paul prays constantly. He prays regularly. Next, I think it goes without saying that Paul prays, letter B, selflessly. Selflessly. Think of all the different people and churches he's praying for. He spends a lot of time asking God to help other people, comfort other people pour his goodness on other people, right? And in fact, if your memory banks could skim through the letters of Paul, you would realize he doesn't ask for prayer for himself very often. Hardly ever, in fact. But when he does, I've got three examples for you. When he does, let's see what he prays for. He asks people to pray for for him. Let me put it that way. In Colossians 4, he asks that God will open a door for the word. In Ephesians 6, he asks them to pray that he will boldly proclaim the gospel. And in 2 Thess 3, he asked that the word of God would spread. Every single one of his prayer requests is really not about himself. It's really about others. Again, another example that he is a selfless prayer. Now, it doesn't sound like that big a deal. 
But if you and I were honest, and if we were literally to track, if we had a tally mark and we were tracking how many minutes we spent in prayer for ourselves and the things that directly affect us, and how often we were really selfless praying for others who would in no way benefit us. I wonder what that tally would be. It's not wrong to pray that your son makes the team, or your husband gets a promotion, or your mom is healed. That's all great, but each and every one of those really directly affects you. If God answers that prayer and your mom gets healed, oh, that makes you feel better too. Now, none of those things are wrong to pray for, but Paul spent a vast majority of his prayer praying purely for other people. We could probably push ourselves to go farther in that direction is all I'm trying to say. He was not just concerned for people he already loved. He wanted God's goodness to pour out on everyone, even perfect strangers, even people he would never meet, even people who lived hundreds of miles away. And in 1 Thess 3.10, we will see the second, or the last two, I should say. It says here that Paul is praying most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul loved the Thessalonians, and he was praying so passionately for them. And here we can see, letter C, we need to pray more often for others, and we need to pray fervently is the word I used. Fervently, with excitement, enthusiasm. He's all in. He's even willing to lose sleep because he's so devoted and committed to praying for them. And you go, oh, I do that too. Okay, wait, 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 wait. He does it a different way. You wake up in the middle of the night, right? Are we honest here? You wake up in the middle of the night and you go, I'll use this time for prayer. No, 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 that's not what Paul's doing. I mean, that's great. Don't get me wrong. I do it too. But he actually decides and plans to lose sleep in order to pray for people. That means he's either staying up or he's getting up and losing sleep for it. He is all in for them. And from that, we see another one, <clears throat> letter D. We learn to pray continually, continually. First Thess 5.18 puts it like this, we should be praying without ceasing. Now, three of these are elements of prayer that you would use in your concentrated prayer time, your quiet time, your prayer closet. But that fourth one there is something you would be sprinkling throughout your day, continually praying throughout the day. So from Paul's example, and there's so much more I could take you to, but this was not supposed to be a message on prayer, so we're going to just leave it at these four, but we want to learn to pray regularly, selflessly, fervently, and continually, like Paul did so that we can fuel our thanksgiving. My first question then for Women's Bible Study for you is how you doing? How are you doing with praying in this way? To answer that, you've got to think through what you've actually been doing lately. Let's think back to your quiet time this morning. How was that? How was your concentrated prayer time there? Maybe I won't give you, I won't make you pick it today. How about yesterday or last week? Since Women's Bible Study Day, you may not get the whole thing in, right? We all make excuses for ourselves that day. So I'll let you look at last week, okay? How did your prayer time go? When did you pray? How long did you pray? Who did you pray for? And if you're praying, um, would you be happy if Jesus was to step into your prayer time and evaluate how it went? You know he's there every time, right? Are you praying anywhere close to what you think the Apostle Paul is praying. If you're doing well, great, high fives to you. And some of you are, and it's awesome, and you are an inspiration to all the rest of us because you are great prayer warriors. That's fantastic. But some of us might like to take some inspiration from Paul and tweak a couple things and do a little bit better. 
Now, <clears throat> I'm going to have basically two tweaks for you. And, but my goal overarching on both of them is just getting us to pray more, right? Whether it's more time, more people, more faithfully, we just want to pray more, okay? Well, I realized, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, I was trying to learn to love people better and I was wanting to pray for them more and I realized, you know what, that's never going to happen if I don't add more minutes, so my first week was just more minutes. I decided to take whatever I was doing in prayer, and I wasn't so bold as to double it. I should have. I'm about ready to be there for that. But instead, I just I gave myself a baby step in that direction. I said, I'm going to add 50% to my prayer time. Whatever it was three years ago, I'm going to add 50%. Because I know to pray for more people, I just need to pray more minutes. So that's what I did. I started adding 50% more. You know, this, le this weekend, Pastor Mike talked to us about sacrificing trivial things that don't matter for things that do. And that was, this is very much along these lines. Because I had to sacrifice something to put those minutes in there, right? You only have so many minutes. Well, that's the first week, just adding more time. The second week is about adding more people. So when I, when I sit down to do my prayer time, I am a timer woman. I, I am. I have make no bones about that. I am a timer woman. I turn my timer on for my new chunk of time, and I pray until the timer goes off. I don't feel guilty. I don't go, oh, no. I just, I, that's what I have. And what I do is I grab a list. Because I want to pray for more people, I've decided to grab one list one day, pray it for my chunk of time, and then set it down, and the next day I grab another list. If it, you guys are like me. I know it. You have so many lists of prayers, you have no idea what to do with all these people. And you actually feel guilty when you see them at church because they pass by you and you think, oh, I'm supposed to be praying for that person. I haven't got there yet, okay? So what I do is I pick up one list a day. Tomorrow, I pick up a brand new list. The next day, I pick up a brand new list. The next day, I pick a brand new list. And I'm not, I don't feel guilty about it. I just, that's what I do. So I can pray for more people. Here's how I happen to organize. So more time was my first week. The second one was more lists or more people. Now, here's what I organize them like right now. I spend one day praying for our compass pastors and our plant pastors. That's all I do for my prayer time. I don't do anything else. Okay, so again, timer woman. Post-it list timers. All three are my friends. I set my timer on my watch for three minutes, and I pray for one pastor. Let's say I pray for Pastor Mark. Okay, I turn the timer on for three minutes, and I pray for Pastor Mark that whole three minutes. I pray for his quiet time. I pray for his family. I pray for his preaching. I pray for his discernment. I pray for the areas that he has responsibility over. I might pray for some specifics that are in his ministry that I know about. And at the end of three minutes, boop, next. Pastor Kellen, three minutes, right? And I don't feel guilty that I didn't spend more than three minutes for Pastor Mark. Does Pastor Mark deserve more than three minutes? Certainly he does. But I have a whole pile of lists just like you do. So I keep praying for all my pastors, three minutes, three minutes, three minutes, three and. I have had some amazing concentrated prayer time at the end of that time. And I walk out going, I prayed for some people. And I'm pretty excited about that. The next day, I open my notes app. On my notes app, when I meet with people, I write down their prayer requests well. I type their prayer requests into my notes app. And then it's just lost in oblivion. Nobody ever looks at that again. Well, I have decided to open that notes app one day a week. And it's a huge list. 
So sometimes I start in the middle, sometimes I start at the bottom and go backwards, sometimes I go every other person, right? I just try to get through as many of those people as I can one day a week. So one day a week, the pastors, one day a week, the notes app. One day a week, I grab the Christmas cards. You guys have Christmas cards. You send them to me every year, and my pile is about this big. I grab a pile of those Christmas cards, and I get to pray for you. Well, everyone who sends me a Christmas card, there you go. Um, I pray for my family's long-term prayer requests one day a week. You know, stuff like, you know, Eden's got a fever. Guess what? She doesn't have a fever. But that one is one that I'm going to remember throughout my day, and I'm going to be praying for that. But I need to make sure I'm praying that Eden loves God first and most. So I spend one day praying for those long-term prayer requests for my family members, okay? Then I pray for the staff gals and wives at our church. That means the wives of the staff guys and the women. And that is my small group. But in my small group, I have 57 people. It's kind of a big, small group. So they get two days a week. That's the only break of this rule. One day a week for everybody. I would never get through them if I didn't do two days, two days a week for them. And then I pray for my pastor's wives one day a week. I pray through the prayer chain, the people in our church that are hurting. I pray for the prayer chain one day a week at least. And then have you ever used Echo? Echo, sorry. Echo is an app on your phone. There's a Compass Bible Church feed on it. And all these great prayer requests come up at you. And they're things you would never pray for on your own, like construction in 140. I, I just would never think to pray for that. Safety on campus over the weekend. Do you ever think to pray for that? Wait, Echo, the Echo app throws things at you like that. I do that one day a week. And I use our prayer journal, you know, the one that sells in the bookstore, one day a week. You're going, wait a minute, scratch my head. Um, <clears throat> you just said way more than seven days. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but you know what? I don't worry about it. I just pick up a new list the next day and I don't sweat it. Yeah, it's 10 days really, but that's all right. Every day I pick up a new list. The one I make sure that happens every week is the prayer chain because it comes out every week right? <clears throat> there you go. That's how I manage to get more people. It, it's not, you know, brain surgery, and it's just a suggestion, but there you go. I could pray all the time, and so could you, but it's not realistic. So how can we just maximize what we're already, what our schedule and our life is like? And I'll tell you what, the more I pray, the more I want to pray, especially when I see him answer, right? I'm sure you've had the same experience. And of course, I'm also praying without ceasing, throwing up the prayers all the time, if you literally pray one of these lists every day, all of a sudden, when you have all these moments, you'll be driving down the street and go, oh, I need to pray for Elvis. I need to pray for the narrow, right? You, you're, you will remember to pray for things as you're living throughout your day because you've been praying all the time. When you wake up in the middle of the night, you'll go, I need to pray for that person on the prayer chain, right? It'll just come to your mind because you've been praying for them. I also do have Post-it notes everywhere. People come to my house or they look at my car and they go, oh, she really does. Yes, prayer requests are on the post-it notes everywhere. That helps me pray without ceasing. People text me their problems or what their issues are, and I pray for those during my praying without ceasing times. And I use social media to pray without ceasing. That's how I see, oh, hey, Tustin just got their CUP. Oh, I need to thank God for that, but I need to pray they get their building built and that they have a great relationship with Santa Ana. Boom, social media helps me remember that, hey, Huntington Beach, they just hired a pastor. They're getting ready to plant a church. I need to pray for them. Or wait, North Tustin, they're hired, North Tustin, North Texas, they're having a launch meeting. Oh, they're going to need meeting space. It reminds me to pray for them. Or wow, we're going to lose all these servants to North Texas. We better pray that AV, all these people step in that are there to serve in those spots. 
So praying without ceasing happens when I look at social media as well. So I'm doing both, concentrated and without ceasing. I pray a lot, but it's frankly never enough. But I'm thankful that when I put someone in the capable hands of God, they're in the capable hands of God. They really aren't my responsibility. They're his. So I put them there and I leave them there. Oswald Chambers said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. I think the Apostle Paul thought that, and I'm shooting for that. Do you know the best thing about prayer? Is that you get to see God answer prayer. And you get to see God work, and your thankfulness only increases. Your respect for him, your love for him, your praise of him increases because you pray. And when you pray, people tend to start asking you to pray for them because they know you actually pray. So those here that are actually praying, I bet you pray more than others, partly because people all rush to you to get you to pray for them. That's great, because guess what? We get to see people that God answered prayer in their life, and we get to thank God for it because we're praying for them. In fact, I think that is one of the greatest things about being a pastor's wife. Could we go down a whole list of all the terrible things? Yes, we could. But you know what? The best thing is, and I'm going to shoot for the best thing, and that is that I get to see people's lives that are all messed up, and then God untangles it all. He works in their life, and I, I get a front row seat to seeing God work. Do you know the, the coolest thing about that? You don't have to be a pastor's wife. You don't have to be a leader at all to see that. You only have to be a woman who prays. If you're a woman who prays, you will see God answer prayer, and you will begin to thank God just like the Apostle Paul does. It's a great and sweet gift that he gives us. Now, speaking of thanking, Colossians 1.3 goes on. It says, we always thank God when we pray for you. Then he says, for, in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, we're going to say that thanks for the last, and we're going to skip down to the end of 5. Paul's going to thank God for something else. End of 5 says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And verse 8, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We've said it. When we pray, God works, and we get to thank him. But the most important thing that Paul wants to thank God for is that he saved the Colossians, okay? So we're going to put point number two like this. Thank God he saves Thank God he saves. Paul is telling the Colossians how happy he is that they heard the gospel and they understood it and God saved them. It's the most important thing we could ever thank him for is that he saves people. Now, of course, Paul is a church planter, but he's not the one who planted Colossae. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Colossians 2.1, Paul says, I've never seen you. I've never met you. You can't plant a church if you haven't met the people there and shared the gospel with them. So he obviously didn't. So how did this happen? If he didn't do it, who did it? Well, um, at one point during the missionary journeys, okay, there was a first, a second, a third missionary journey. During the second missionary journey, he got pretty close to Colossae when he was in Ephesus. Okay, it's pretty close to Colossae there. But the Bible says that he passed through Ephesus that time. Now, maybe that's when he met Epaphras. And we know Epaphras got converted under Paul in Ephesus. We assume that. But maybe it didn't happen until the third missionary journey. 
The reason why this might have more weight is because the third missionary journey, Paul ends up in Ephesus, really close to Colossae, and he stays three years, which would give him time not only for Epaphras to get saved, but for him to disciple Epaphras and raise him up to go out and be the church planter that would be the one that would plant the church at Colossae. We know he's the one that planted the church at Colossae. We weren't, we're just not sure about how it actually exactly happened probably the third missionary journey. Now, um, we know that Epaphras is a native of Colossae because in Colossians 4.12, it says that. It tells us that he's from Colossae. Now, I can't imagine that Epaphras would ever want to leave the Apostle Paul. I mean, come on. You're doing ministry next to the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, which was rocking for those three years. Yeah, they had the riots and everything too. But many people were becoming Christians. I mean, who would want to leave? But Epaphras, he loved the Lord, he loved the gospel, he loved the lost, and he loved his hometown. And that's why he left. He left Paul to go to his hometown to share the gospel and to hopefully get the people saved, his family, his neighbors, his community in Colossae and plant a church there. This was Paul's pattern. He would plant a church like he did in Ephesus or in other places, and then he would send those converts out. He would raise them up, and he'd send them out to plant another church. In Colossians 4.13, it says that Epaphras also preached in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He was a committed evangelist, Epaphras was. And because of that, Paul got spiritual grandkids. Epaphras got him some spiritual grandkids. And guess what? That's exactly what's happening up at Compass HB because they got boots on the ground and they're getting ready to plant Compass Long Beach. And that will be our first grandkid. AV's first grandkid will be Long Beach. And if you're not already praying for the birth of our grandkid Long Beach, I, I beg you to join with us that that community would get reached for Christ. Epaphras was a successful church planter. We know it because of even the, the point of Colossians we've been looking at. These people got saved and they're growing. That means he was successful at reaching this community for Christ. Then Epaphras travels to Rome at some point and he talks to Paul about how the Colossians are doing. And they're writing back from there this letter. Okay? But you can now see not only was Paul praying for the Colossian church to be planted, but now you can see why he's thanking God that they got saved. He had a hand the whole way through and praying for them and supporting them. Okay, now let's look at this chunk of verse 6 because they got saved because they had the right gospel. And there's a handful of things here I want to kind of pull out of this. It's important for us to be thankful for. These people got the right gospel, verse 6 says. It was the word of truth, the gospel. That's important because to truly be saved, you have to have the right gospel. Right? You can't be saved with the wrong gospel. Um, it doesn't come right out and say it, but Paul is going to address some kind of issue in this book this year. But he does it kind of subtly. Kind of like when you're a mom and your daughter always leaves her gym clothes at home. She never washes them over the weekend. She's got stinky gym clothes Monday, and then she forgets them. Um, you're trying to teach her independence, so you're not going to just go, are they in your backpack, right? <laughs> Instead, you're going to go, hey, hun, I noticed that you must be playing soccer because you've got grass stains on your gym clothes. Could I help you get those out this week? Okay, now you're allowing your child to have this independence, and yet you're still reminding them. 
It's kind of what Paul's doing. He's actually subtly telling them some things in this book, but we have to read between the lines. And when we do, we see that Paul is encouraging them um, that they've got the right gospel. That's why he says it's the true gospel. In other words, don't look anywhere else. They've got a problem, and he wants to remind them, you got it right. Don't try to find somebody else. Don't look somewhere else. The next discussion he's going to have is on the preeminence of Christ. Because again, he's trying to remind them, Christ is the only way. You should not be looking at any other false teaching to try to find God. You already have him. Then he's going to later say, I desire that everyone be taught with all wisdom and presented mature in Christ. All these things lead us to believe that Paul is, going to, is trying to help them overcome error and false teaching and bad thinking. He even puts his muscle behind it by reminding them that he's an apostle. We studied that last week and saying, I speak for God. Epaphras got it right. You have the true gospel. You're really saved and you shouldn't be looking anywhere else. Another thing that is attesting to the fact that these people really got saved, besides the right gospel, is that Paul says that the right gospel is going to make an impact. He says here in verse 6 that it will bear fruit and increase because that's what the gospel does in any century, soil, or geography. People are going to get saved, and they're going to keep getting saved with the right gospel. It was happening in Colossae, and it was going to keep happening. It's going to change lives and keep changing lives. There are lots of stories in the book of Acts to prove that, but here's one that I found that happened around the same time and place while Paul was in Ephesus and Epaphras, we assume, was in Colossae. In Acts 19.20, this is what it says. It says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The gospel was making an impact. It was the true gospel, and we could tell because it was saving and it was making an impact. Then in verse 6, it also says, it is the grace of God. The gospel was about the grace of God in verse 6. It was unearned goodness that caused these people to get saved. It reminds me of a story I heard of a guy who showed up at the gates of heaven, talked to Gabriel there, and basically said, Gabriel, let me in. And this is what Gabriel said to him. Here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it to heaven. You tell me the good things you've done, and I'll give you points. When you get to heaven, you get to 100, I'll let you in. Okay, the man said, well, I was married to one woman for 50 years, and I never cheated on her even in my heart. Gabriel goes, awesome, good, great job, three points. Three points? Okay, well... Then he says, okay, I, I was committed to the church my whole life. I always went. I gave my money. I served. Gabriel goes, fantastic. Two points. Guys, <gasps> like, two points? Yikes. Okay, um, uh, let's see. I, I, um, I fed the hungry and the homeless at Christmas every year, and I made sure that hundreds of people got a, a hot meal. That's fantastic. One point. The guy says, well, at this rate, the only way I'm going to get to heaven is by the grace of God. And Gabriel says, exactly, come on in. Because <laughs> it's the grace of God alone. There is nothing that we can do. There is nothing the Colossians could do. There's nothing our friends in Huntington Beach or Tustin or New Braunfels or North Dallas or, what's he, Idaho, Treasure Valley, or Guatemala City. There's nothing that any of those people can do to get right with God except to simply accept the gift that God gave them of grace. So I guess as we start Bible study, it is important to mention the true gospel again. Real Christians embrace a biblical gospel. It clearly states we're sinners and we live life